Liquidity is global. It is fungible. It is agnostic. It knows no borders and it knows no asset classes. It flows to wherever the cracks are open. You can talk about Hong Kong residential real estate. You can talk about commercial real estate in London. You can talk about corporate bonds in the United States. Stocks pretty much, oh, I don't know, anywhere. Any place that liquidity could land over the past few years, it has. And now that it's being withdrawn, none of the markets like it very much. I think we'll see more violent reaction in the coming months, especially in the European corporate bond market, as this liquidity is removed from the system. And I don't think investors will like it one bit. But I will tell you my biggest lesson that I have ever learned is that I will never again deny the simplicity and the utility of liquidity. And it's as simple as that. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win an investment, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, are you ready to rock? So ready to rumble. Let's do this. All right. Fantastic. Well, Danielle is CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence, LLC, a new research and analytics firm. She is known for her meticulous research in the financial markets and her unique perspective honed from years of experience in central banking and on Wall Street. The author of the Amazon bestseller, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Booth is a global thought leader sought after for insights on monetary policy, both in the U.S. and abroad. In May 2018, Booth was invited to Brussels by members of the European Parliament to share her insights on global economic trends and fiscal policy. Beginning in 2006, Booth spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as advisor to President Richard W. Fisher, which she talks about in the book, in fact, until his retirement in March 2015. She provided market intelligence and policy briefings and advised Fisher on policy, a unique role that did not exist outside the New York Fed prior to her appointment. And for those of you who have not read the book, it was recommended to me by a friend of mine. I listened to her lovely voice on Audible, and I listened to the whole thing and found it fascinating. So I highly recommend it. Danielle, take a minute and fill in any further details about your life. I would add that there were, my life took a very circuitous path. I had offers from Arthur Anderson, offers from Enron, Lehman Brothers, and Bear Stearns. So uh, you never know in life that your choice might just end up being serendipitous, but indeed providential at the same time. So those are the four strangest true things that I can tell you about how my life was right before I started in New York on Wall Street, before I came back down to Dallas, where I ended up serving at the Federal Reserve, which I never planned on. Yeah. And are you still in Dallas now or do you travel a lot or what's your... I'm still in Dallas. I'm probably in New York about once every two or three weeks for media and I'm the Fed whisperer. So they, I'm the go-to person to try and explain what policymakers are, are thinking. It's, it's a role that I came to naturally because I came from Wall Street. I'm not a PhD in economics, but I certainly understand how central bankers think and work. It's interesting because um, I read a, a book that I found pretty fascinating called Hidden in Plain Sight, talking about some of the origins of what he proposed was the origins of the financial crisis, which was really ultimately political intervention into the banking system and requiring banks to have more and more and more bad loans. And what I can say is that I was a bank analyst for my first 10 years of my career when the banking sector in Thailand was booming and then it crashed while I was an analyst 
and then a recovery period where we had to recapitalize the bank. So I, I learned a lot from that experience. And I think one of the things I'm glad about having you on a show is that having spent half my life in Asia, I want my Asian listeners and listeners in Asia to, to know you and to understand some of the points that you make. Because I believe that in some ways, the U.S. policy leaders aren't going to even listen to a lot of the you know, arguments about what, why they caused what they caused. And of course, they have a incentive not to blame themselves for that. So, but I think that a lot of central bankers in Asia are open to listening. So I just want to say that that's, uh, that's the case. And maybe someday we can get you to tour around and share some of your knowledge with some of our central bankers around Asia. So that's just an idea off the top of my head. That would be great. Yeah. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So it was the heat of the great financial crisis. My boss, Richard Fisher, was being roundly derided for saying that the Federal Reserve should not reduce interest rates to the so-called zero bound, that it was not a case of the price of credit being the impediment to market functionality, but rather liquidity being in a frozen state, whereas it had been abundantly liquid in the years prior. I understood what he was saying. I listened to what he was saying. I advised and helped engineer and create many of the liquidity systems that were implemented through the New York Fed, working in conjunction with the New York Fed. I witnessed the re uh, it was the jaws of life. I witnessed the, the forceful reopening of the capital markets via these liquidity facilities and learned nothing from it. I walked away with zero information, even though, again, I was one of the chief architects of these facilities. I was so bitter at the time that we had taken interest rates to zero unnecessarily. Again, it was not the price of credit that was the impediment to growth, it was rather liquidity. And as I witnessed firsthand the, the fall of Lehman Brothers, and within 48 hours, the $85 billion bailout of AIG, and in the months that followed, the rollout of quantitative easing, and the effect that that had on the financial markets, again and again forgot the first lesson that I not only learned myself, but taught others, and that was that of liquidity. And I look back all these years later, this is 10 years we're coming around to, right? The European Central Bank is finally set to pull the plug on its own balance sheet expansion on the first of the year 2019. This is going to be the first time that we're net negative in a global liquidity position in over a decade. Had I had my druthers, I would have simply jumped in feet first into the fire and gone with the liquidity, simply moved with the flow and ridden the wave up until Mario Draghi, kicking and screaming, was forced to pull the plug on the ECB's QE, but not until then. So if there's one lesson that I would convey to others, it is that liquidity is global, it is fungible, it is agnostic, it knows no borders, and it knows no asset classes. It flows to wherever the cracks are open. You can talk about Hong Kong residential real estate. You can talk about commercial real estate in London. You can talk about corporate bonds in the United States. Stocks pretty much, oh, I don't know, anywhere. 
any place that liquidity could land over the past few years, it has. And now that it's being withdrawn, none of the markets like it very much. I think we'll see more violent reaction in the coming months, especially in the European corporate bond market, as this liquidity is removed from the system. And I don't think investors will like it one bit. But I will tell you my biggest lesson that I have ever learned is that I will never again deny the simplicity and the utility of liquidity. And it's as simple as that. That's fantastic. I'd like to discuss a few points about that. I mean, when, when I think about liquidity, I think about like an ocean and waves coming in, or maybe in uh, Thailand, we had the, the floods that happened in Phuket in the south um, and also through Indonesia. And when a rise of liquidity, actual water in that case comes, it pushes everything up. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about liquidity, you're talking about that when money comes into an area, prices go up. Is that what you're saying? For the audience All, that doesn't know. For the audience that doesn't know, the reason I use the word agnostic as it applies to liquidity is that liquidity doesn't care where it finds a home. It just has to find a home. And that is why we found and have found that every single asset class on planet Earth has moved up, save gold, in response to this deluge of liquidity. Again, I refer back to the word fungible, global, and agnostic, because liquidity is blind. It only knows that it needs to find a home. And over the past decade, it's found many, many homes. Think about Australian real estate. I just wrote 4,000 words on it that I published mm -hmm. this week. Think about the same thing in New Zealand or Canada. Think about many commodities markets. Again, wherever it can find a home, it has and it will. And investors just need to appreciate that as long as it exists, that they should not fight the wave. Got it. When we look back at the time when you were at the Fed and you were looking at the, the interest rates coming down, and as you said, the price of credit, as in other words, the interest rate was not the cause of the tightening of that market. In fact, as I recall, the banks actually were, were cashed up and they weren't lending at that time. That's right. And even though lending rates were low, they were risk averse and therefore they didn't lend out. So that's where I presume what you're saying is that the Fed stepped in with the role of trying to get liquidity moving in the system. They did, and they did that by actually forcing liquidity into the system because after they took interest rates all the way down to zero, all the way down to the zero bound, they found that it had very little effect. And in fact, they had to start paying the bank perversely to hold liquidity. We were still in that situation today. Obviously, there's some nine, almost $9 trillion of debt in the world that is holding negative interest rates. So we've actually gone one further step down into this, cross the Rubicon one further step. It makes me crazy to describe what central bankers have done, but by the same token, does not seem like there is political wherewithal, even at the Bank of Japan. Even at the Bank of Japan, it does not seem like there's political wherewithal to continue down the path of quantitative easing or in layman's terms, the printing of money. And the fact that that is truly being ratcheted back, headed into 2019, is something that should be completely front and center for investors worldwide. I wanna come back to that in just a second and look at the implications for investors. But one of the questions I wanna ask it to follow on from the, the previous one is that when ultimately interest rates are brought down and floods of money are coming into a system, you usually get two things. One would be uh, inflation and the other would be malinvestment. 
maybe there's others, but those are two that I'm thinking of. Because you're thinking like an Austrian. Yes, exactly. And so my question is, I mean, they've somehow gotten away with the, uh, with, with the inflation where they can announce a headline inflation that's been very, very low for a long time. Is that just not a true inflation number that, that's being announced in the U.S.? Or is there some reason why inflation didn't take hold? For instance, China has brought you know, 400 million people into the workforce that has driven down wages globally. And therefore, the weight of that has prevented inflation coming into the U.S. market, as an example. Or, or why is it, have, has inflation and malinvestment come? Are they coming now? Or is it just not this time? Well, I, I think it's indisputable that malinvestment has come and gone. If, if you think about the virtues of the shale revolution in the United States, it's not so much that it was all good money after bad, it was just simply too much of it. And so now we're having to deal with the vestiges of that, which is a lot of bad debts, and we will see more of that occur in, in the coming months and years. But to your question, there, it was a two-pronged idiosyncratic event. It was the influx of these hundreds of millions of workers into the global workforce. It was also technology and innovation and doing a lot more with fewer people. But it was also something that too few people recognize and discuss. And that is that if you have everybody on board, and when I say everybody, I mean every nation in the world. If every nation in the world is on board with the United States and the People's Bank of China and, and the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, if everybody's on board with the buildup of debt, such that we go from give or take 170 trillion in 2007 to 250 trillion dollars today of global debt levels. The implication is that we're all going to agree cordially to service that debt. And in doing so, every single dollar or yuan or yen or euro that we have, a greater proportion of those currencies has to be dedicated to servicing the debt, which by definition leaves a smaller proportion to be applied to inflation of goods and services. It's simply a, money, a matter of running out of money. That, that is the hallmark of the current episode that began on August the 11th, 1987, when Alan Greenspan took office at the Federal Reserve and introduced this element of letting investors know in advance of central bank moves, central bank was going to do in advance of them. It was the genie out of the bottle of moral hazard. It has not been put back in when you release moral hazard and when you say that you have unfettered access to unlimited amounts of debt, then you are going to create a deflationary backdrop because you've been given license to print as much as you can, but you have to, it doesn't matter how cheap the cost is to service it, you still have to service it, which means you've got fewer cents on the dollar afterwards to allow for inflation in other goods and services. And one question I had is that maybe it doesn't matter because, hey, look, companies and individuals, they were, they were really hurt after the crisis, so they didn't actually borrow that much in the first five years, maybe after the 2008 financial crisis, but it, a lot of that bad debt particularly went onto the balance sheet of the government, let's say. And so now the government's sitting on a huge of debt and maybe it's been a case that, hey, debt's being put onto, let's say the Chinese government also, that's, that's taking over bad assets. And so maybe this is just, a, is this now just a currency government problem or is it really a consumer and a company problem now? I think it's both, sadly enough. I mean, uh, 
aggregate debt to GDP in China is north of 300%. Yeah. Their non-financial debt is, is the likes of which we've never seen. Non-financial debt to GDP in the United States is higher than it's been in the history of mankind. As is government debt, we've got $1.3 trillion in deficit rolling down the barrel next year. Again, it, outside of U.S. households, outside of U.S. households, everybody else is levered up. And corporations have levered up. It, the money has been so cheap. It has not just been a passing of the baton. It has been more than that. That is how you go from 170 to 250 trillion. Okay. You don't do that overnight. When I look back at America, I left in 1992. And I look at, for instance, the opioid epidemic. It's just like funneling drugs into the society. Now the drug dealers are the physicians. <laughs> and now they've gotten people you know, hooked. And now you're in for real trouble of how do you get people off of that drug? And it seems like what you're saying is that not only the US, but the world has been used to getting all of this low cost credit and money's everywhere. And now, you know, the, the end, end of this is not gonna be pretty, like an addict ending up in a hospital, you know, near death, basically. Thank you, Kuroda. Thank you, Carney. Thank you, Draghi. Thank you, Bernanke. Thank you, Yellen. I mean, just fill in the blank. And the, the problem is they, they all drank the same Kool-Aid. They all are, are working from the same playbook and they're desperate just to hit retirement. I mean, Draghi is like, I can see Rome. I can see, I know I'm retiring in 2019. Just let me get out before I even have to raise interest rates one time. They will be rewriting economic textbooks because Europe is going to go into recession with negative interest rates. They're going to have to rewrite the textbooks. It's insane. Let, let's um, try to wrap this up a little bit by trying to understand how an investor should be thinking about this. So, for instance, um, I remember I was giving a, a speech somewhere and a guy raised his hand, a friend of mine, and his name's Robert. He raised his hand. And he says, you know, I don't understand about inflation, particularly in the U.S. The stock market has inflated for the last 10 years and it's inflated massively. And then wages have been down for so long and then a little tick up in wages and everybody's in an uproar. And he said, the average guy's got nothing over this period of time and the average person who has wealth has seen it inflated through this inflation of the asset market and probably of the real estate market and, and other places that it's been inflated. But the average person hasn't seen their income inflated at all. And I'm just curious after listening to that and thinking about what you're saying, how, does, how should an investor think now when we see that the market is extremely high and it's driven by lots of the factors that we're talking about? I guess the real question is, how should an, the average Joe investor think, hey, it's going to go higher? Or should they think this is headed for a crash or can they maintain it at this level? Just curious. You're not given a recommendation, but I just want you to kind of put together your logical thinking of what happens over the next one, two, three, five years. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm, what, what people don't quite understand, I, I, I read my Twitter feed sometimes and they get irate and they're like, well, they're, they're just, they're just going to turn on the printing press again. And you actually have to go through and explain that before they turn the printing press on, they're going to have to lower interest rates back to the zero bound. And that requires going through a recession to get there. I, I would look at this simply through the prism that I lost. I lost in the weeds. I lost because I was a a bitter person inside the factory, inside the money printing institution. As long as the liquidity is abundant, then you should be invested in risky assets. If the liquidity spigot turns off, 
then you should not be ashamed to take advantage of 3% returns on cold hard cash and maybe have some gold as a hedge in the coming one or two years. It's not so much I'm showing my age. I'm just not willing to work an extra 20 years so that I can so that I can make back what some average Joe broker tells me about long-term investing and buying and holding. I, I don't buy that. Got it. When the liquidity comes back, I'll be back in two feet. And is there any constraint on governments about liquidity? I mean, it used to be the constraint that the currency would lose its value as a country would be pumping, you know, printing the money into the system. But maybe since everybody's doing it nowadays, it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't have an impact. Or maybe, you know, the uniqueness of the American story was that, you know, hey, it's a safe haven. So even if they have a huge amount of debt, money goes in there when there's, you know, wars and other things. So the question is, is there any constraint that will hit at some point that the governments can't print anymore or cannot inflate the asset bubble anymore? I think the only constraint that we know of is how long it takes the Chinese to unwind their position to being a very short maturity average holding of U.S. Treasuries. As long as they would sustain major capital losses by dumping U.S. Treasuries, we have that's the length of our runway is as long as it takes the Chinese to unwind their position. Until that day happens, I'm afraid the euro's a train wreck, the yen's a mess. The yuan's not viable yet, and the do dollar still re remains the most attractive horse in the glue factory, but all horses in the glue factory eventually go to slaughter. And I, let me just follow up on that, and then we'll wrap up. Is there, is the, are the Chinese already, let's say, because of many different factors, trade wars and other things, but are the Chinese starting to slow down in this, and let's say, not even you know, letting the treasuries, U.S. treasuries that they own just retire and take the money out and put it into gold or some other assets? Or there, is there a reason why they have to continue to buy? They do continue to recycle, but they've been actively, to answer your question, very, very, very actively shortening the, the maturity of the average treasury in their holding. They have their eye on 2030 and on the goal of becoming the largest economy in the world by then, and that means having zero dependence on U.S. Treasuries and the fate thereof. But the Chinese have been very, very active. They've been doing it for years already in what we call shortening the duration of their holdings. And that shortening of duration is to prepare for interest rates rising. I'm, I'm assuming that that's part of what they're it's, doing. It's preparing for not caring what U.S. interest rates do. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, let's just wrap this up. Based upon this lesson that you've learned, and really, it's a, it's a story of opportunity missed. And I've got, a lot of, I've got a lot of listeners that are in the middle of stories. They're in the middle of an unfolding, whether that's like one of my friends, Chris, as I mentioned before, we did the show in Ohio. And Chris saw Amazon since he was young, and he, he didn't invest in it. Another guy didn't invest in Walmart. Another guy didn't, you know. We miss these opportunities when we're right in the middle of them. What advice, what one action or one piece of advice would you give people who are potentially sitting in the middle of the situation like you were and, and to help them think about how they could take advantage of that? Well, I think the most important thing to think about if you're sitting on a pile of gains, as you potentially described, is the sticky that I used to have on my, on, on, on my computer when I was on Wall Street all, the, all those years that said pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. You always take your profits off the table. If you want to let the dice roll, leave your cost bases there. Take your profits, put them in something safe, 
call it a day, and you've still got a foothold in your original position. But again, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. It, it, it is a very tenuous time for monopolies in the United States. I think that politically they're going to be in the crosshairs, and I think that the standard oil from generations ago is going to be the future of many of these companies that are now perceived to be absolute monopolies that have, that have got too much control over our lives. Politicians are fickle people, and I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. And we can't throw them very far, so that means we don't trust them very much. Well, all right, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And as we wrap up, Danielle, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, yes, I, I absolutely do, because Twitter never sleeps, so follow me at Demartino Booth. And go on quillintelligence.com if you want to read a little bit more about what I do. Fantastic. And that's very good reading. Don't forget to pick up the book. I'll have this, all of those linked in the show notes. And I think you'll gain a lot of wisdom from it. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.